Hello and welcome back to the podcast. In our last episode, we saw the formation of the United Colonies of New England, otherwise known as the New England Confederacy. We're the Puritan colonies of Plymouth, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New Haven came together during the confusion of the English Civil War to create some semblance of order in the New World amongst themselves. Now, New Haven, being the youngest of the four Puritan colonies, before this point were a number of independent settlements. Of course, New Haven proper being the oldest settlement, run by John Davenport, the Reverend, and Governor Thelophius Eaton. Now, they had invited other people to settle nearby, and that's how we get the settlements of Branford and Guilford, Southhold on Long Island, and Stamford, closer to New Netherland. And let's not forget Milford. Now, in 1643, in order to participate in this New England Confederacy, all of these separate settlements came together and formed one general court over all of them, becoming the proper New Haven colony. That's a short review of our first episode on New Haven. Our last episode followed that up with the creation of the Confederation again. And now here we are back in New Haven, which was designed to be the most puritanical of Puritan colonies, the most pure in every sense without the heresies and troubles of Massachusetts in particular. But not one year after the union of the New Haven settlements, Governor Eaton's wife, Anne Eaton, is accused of being a heretic in a style very similar to Anne Hutchinson when Reverend John Davenport preached a belief that she didn't believe in or otherwise objected to. Anne Eaton would just get up and leave church. And just to remind you how church worked in the New Haven colony and in the Puritan colonies, you were sat by rank. And so the governor's wife would be at the very front of the female section of the church assembly. Getting up and walking out of service was not a subtle thing to do. Much like Anne Hutchinson, whose father was a Puritan reverend who faced some persecution from the church, Anne Eaton's father was the Bishop of Chester. The daughters of clergy were usually very well educated, literate, and outspoken. Their fathers had taught them right from wrong. And when a reverend said something that was wrong, a woman sensing her status will let it be known. Anne Eaton was that woman. In fact, it became known that Anne considered herself a Baptist. I'm clutching my pearls. A Baptist in a Puritan community. Furthermore, one of the slaves that the Eatons owned, yes, they owned as many as three slaves throughout their lives, publicly accused Anne Eaton of bewitching the beer ruining the batch, and he testifies to this in court. Now, this is an accusation of witchcraft, something that the Puritans took very seriously. One and a half to two generations after this, of course, in the 1690s, we're going to see uh, the very famous witch trials in New England that are usually ascribed to Salem, but they were found widespread throughout the Massachusetts colony and elsewhere. Now, the Puritans believed there was a genuine spiritual battle going on unseen to the mortal eye. And now they believed themselves to be elect, and so they were somehow safe from their soul being injured. However, a bewitched individual could make life worse for the elect. I'm quoting the historian Charles M. Andrews. To the Puritan, the power of Satan was ever imminent, working through friend or foe and using the human form as an instrument of injury to the chosen of God. And going back to the root of Puritan, their endless effort and drive to purify their church and themselves, a witch would be a contaminant. And as you know, that contaminant in the form of the person that it inhabits might be eradicated through a death sentence. Now, Anne Eaton was officially excommunicated by the church, 
which certainly made things awkward for her husband. But as far as facing a criminal sentence for her beliefs, Anne's status and good nature provided her some protection. Unlike Anne Hutchinson, she wasn't uh, at the center of some opposition party to the governor, because the governor was her husband. And through her wit, she joked that if the government were to come after her, she would convert all the women in the colony to Baptists and run away to Rhode Island with them. And there, to her credit, where Anne Hutchinson had failed, and John Wheelwright, and Roger Williams, and Samuel Gorton, they just let the matter lay. But since our last episode on New Haven ended pretty much with its formation as a real colony, let's talk about some business of the general court in its first couple years of existence. The general court had representatives, sometimes referred to as deputies, from six jurisdictions. So you have New Haven, Southhold, Stamford, Guilford, Milford, and Branford, as well as a governor overall and, and an assistant governor, sometimes called a deputy governor. Each one of these jurisdictions would have their own court in the legal sense, as in a court that would have a court case, as well as a town court or general court that would be like a town board. I know this is confusing, but they'd be one in the same. Sometimes they would have a judicial function, sometimes a legislative function. And if a court case was appealed, it would go to the general larger New Haven court, which also could function as a legislative assembly or a judicial board. Some early legislation in the larger New Haven colony was that they fixed the price and weight of bread. I know today it seems weird, especially if you're younger than me and I'm a millennial, but not that long ago, starches, carbs, these staple crops like corn, wheat, barley, rice, were a large part of anyone's diet. And the further back in time you go, probably more so. Limiting the price that a baker could sell his bread for kept people fed, and it prevented price gouging in times of low supply. We still have similar practices with different goods today. The general court also discussed creating a college of their own a smaller version of the new Harvard College. And debates about this would go back and forth for the next 20 years or so, and they never really nailed down plans to do it. The courts also discussed uh, something that happened in our last episode on New Haven, was the continued effort from people from New Haven to settle on the Delaware River and their subsequent removal by the Dutch. You see, New Haven was originally founded to be a Puritan Phoenician empire with little settlements going up and down the coastline of North America, creating a network of towns. Governor Theophilus Eaton had made a lot of his money on the Baltic Sea trade, which again depended on a chain of merchant cities. He sought to recreate that in the New World, but the problem that he ran into was that New Netherland was in the way, and further down, New Sweden. This will come up again. Rounding out the first year or so of the general court's existence, the New Haveners, who had no right in the English legal system to settle that specific chunk of land, despite having permission from the natives, sought some sort of charter because they had heard that Roger Williams returned to Rhode Island, charter in hand victorious, and now a legitimate colony that Plymouth or Massachusetts would have a hard time absorbing. New Haven sought to do the same thing. Furthermore, putting all their eggs in one basket, New Haven wanted to become a colony as powerful as Massachusetts or New Netherland and have their ports streaming in and out with as much commerce as you could find in Boston or New Amsterdam. And so for the first time in 1645, they built what they called a great ship, a seagoing vessel, the first that the colony would have. Now they could undertake direct trade with the great port cities of England or the Caribbean. Governor Eaton organized a joint stock company around this one large vessel, 
the first of many, they hoped, and he called this company the Ship Fellowship, which, I mean, he could have just called it the Fellowship, but there's nothing I can do about that now. This company would be a subsidiary of the Merchants of New Haven, the joint stock company that created the New Haven settlement in the first place. The ship was loaded down with the goods of New Haven to be sold at market. Specifically, the furs they had obtained from the natives would go for a good price in England. And then in order to obtain that charter, they put a man by the name of Thomas Gregson on board. Once in England, he was to take 200 pounds of the profits from the ship's cargo and use it to obtain a charter, just as Roger Williams had done. Uh, but the ship departed late in the season. January of 1646, the boat had to be cut through three miles of ice in order to leave the harbor. All the hopes and dreams of the New Haven colony were on that boat. And then the months rolled by. No letters streaming through Boston from the ports. No victorious return. Nothing. And this is where we enter the realm of legends and perhaps myth. Supposedly, in the summer of 1647, the residents of New Haven spotted a great ship on the horizon. Some accounts say that people could see the men on board in the condition of the ship, which was still immaculate, only to quickly see the vision change in front of them, the mast blown off, the sails abandoned to the sea, and the lonely husk of the ship set adrift, lingering just long enough for everyone to see it, and then disappearing forever. In November of 1647, the estates of the men on board were thusly settled, as they were now considered dead. Now, the Puritans took things as signs from God. If you ever read Thorsten Veblen's, here's the short title, The Protestant Work Ethic, you'll know that early Protestants of the Calvinist variety, of which the Puritans fell into, believed that God and nature and the world would be able to reveal unto you your elect status if you were to risk something, invest in something, go somewhere, travel, build something, and receive a profitable return, or in the least, a successful task, it might, and there's always doubt, it might demonstrate to you your elect status, but it also might demonstrate to you God's approval of what you are undertaking. Keeping that in mind and transferring it to what just happened in New Haven, that boat contained the hopes of a future merchant empire. It contained the hopes of political legitimacy in the English system and the very real human lives of the New Haveners on board. Its mysterious disappearance and then its alleged reappearance as a specter on the horizon was a bad omen. And this isn't just rubbing a, a lucky rabbit's foot at the casino. This ran far deeper into the psyche of the New Havener, whereas the colony had previously prided themselves on being the most puritanical of Puritan colonies, the ultra-Puritan, the cream of the crop, the elect of the elect. We are now introducing the possibility that God might not see it the same way. Where there was hope, now there was doubt. And now let's watch that grow. In 1651, Goody Bassett is hung for dealing with the devil. Witchcraft would no longer be laughed away. As she was dragged to the gallows, she grabbed a stone on the ground. People then thought the stone was bewitched, and they avoided it and would walk around it. Nobody would touch it to remove it. The colony had confirmed contamination. About the same time, New Haveners once again tried to start another settlement on the Delaware, 
This time, Governor Stuyvesant of New Netherland intercepted their colonists at sea and brought them back to New Amsterdam, which is now New York City. Stuyvesant kept them until they each individually agreed to go back to New Haven and abandon their plans to settle on the Delaware. And just as the hope slowly drained out of New Haven, each colonist one by one gave up their dream and returned home. Just in time for the 1653 protesting of non-church members over their lack of rights. Now remember, in New Haven and the other Puritan colonies, if you weren't a member of the church, now that doesn't mean I just show up to church, you have to be accepted as one of the church, you did not have any rights to suffrage. Didn't matter how much land you owned, didn't matter if you were a man, an English man, if you were not a church member, suffrage was denied to you. But the New Haven General Court were able to silence these protesters, and things started to look a little up for New Haven. Believe it or not, because war was on horizon. War with the Dutch. And New Haven is in a confederacy with Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Plymouth. The four of them combined should be able to take out the New Netherland colony, which had a population smaller than just Massachusetts by itself. And with New Netherland out of the way, the New Haveners could colonize the Delaware, the Hudson, anywhere. Optimism was returning. In August of the same year, we see another witchcraft trial. One Elizabeth Godman was accused of being a witch by goodwife Laramore. Such an accusation could be quite damaging, as we already know. And so Godman herself requested that the general court conduct a trial. Laramore claimed that she could often hear Godman muttering to herself. A harmless habit many people have today. I'm doing it right now, actually. But in public, even today, some people could look at that person and go, something's a little off there. Well, at the time... A Puritan of the 17th century wouldn't have just seen someone muttering to themselves, but talking to someone, communing with someone. That someone not being visible and thus a spirit. The good wife Laramore also accused Elizabeth Godman of knowing things she could not know, and thus having obtained them through the communion with a spirit once again. To which Godman claimed she just knew things by inference. This was her way of saying, I am smarter than you. <laughs> I'm not talking to a spirit. I'm just more intelligent than you are, and I'm able to figure things out faster than you. The court ultimately exonerated Elizabeth, but advised her to act differently. They had no time to hang a woman. They were seizing Dutch ships off the coast, bringing newfound wealth to the colony, and of course, kindling the imagination. If they could take out New Netherland, they could open up trade relations with the faraway Iroquois, who were getting furs from the middle of the continent, places that never even appeared on a map, but were only known to the natives themselves. As a member of the United Colonies of New England, New Haven participated in a vote on whether or not to invade New Netherland. New Haven, of course, both their commissioners voted yes. Connecticut, both their commissioners voted yes. Plymouth, both their com commissioners voted yes. Massachusetts only had the two remaining votes, and any vote that is six out of eight, according to their own constitution, would be an affirmative. At least on paper, they don't even need Massachusetts approval to conduct a general war. But nonetheless, Massachusetts votes no. And this is where our episode on the United Colonies of New England, the one previous to this, ends. Massachusetts votes no. They refuse to participate, and because they made up most of the population of the United Colonies... The plan falls apart. It never happens. And instead, Massachusetts broke its constitutionally bound covenant with the other three Puritan colonies. The people of New Haven were outraged and disappointed. 
Nonetheless, they still had a little little seed of optimism, and they used the war between the two respective mother countries to again settle on the Delaware, for how I count it, the third time. This time, they received some approval from the Swedes in New Sweden. But if you listen to the first season of this podcast, you know that didn't matter. Because Peter Stuyvesant received from the Dutch West India Company the largest professional army that that part of North America had ever seen. And in one swoop, he takes all of New Sweden. And with that same force, sends the New Haveners packing. And with the closing of the First Anglo-Dutch War, New Haven found itself right back in the doldrums it was in before the war started. With the pendulum swinging back towards the negative, in Milford, a settlement of New Haven, the local general court, hearing cases with just the judge and no jury, as it was not part of the Old Testament, try and execute a 15-year-old boy for having relations with a dog. The dog was killed in front of the boy, and then the boy was hung in front of the dog's body. Between cases like this, and then the general protest from the non-church members, the legal system of New Haven came under some questioning as to why these laws are so harsh, what's the justification for them, and by what source were they derived. Governor Eaton has all of the laws of New Haven printed in book form, 500 copies, and then sent from England for distribution throughout New Haven, citing the derivation of every point from the Bible and the validity of court cases without juries. The situation became so bad in the New Haven colony that Oliver Cromwell himself, having pushed aside Parliament and become Lord High Protector, suggests that the entire New Haven colony relocate itself and actually offers a portion of the island of Jamaica. Now, we would live in a very different world if the New Haven colony relocated to Jamaica. Imagine how history would proceed from that point. Not accepting that, Cromwell also suggested moving to Ireland. Governor Eaton seriously considered this and actually entered into some negotiations with municipalities in Ireland. But that was not to be either. And without any hope, at least they had the law. The general court passed the law in 1656, saying if anyone disobeyed the Sabbath and the laws of behavior that were to be followed on the Sabbath, the sentence for their crime would be death. In the larger picture, while New Haven was failing in their endeavors and investments, and the United Colonies that they were a member of having this large constitutional crisis, their fellow Puritan colonies of Plymouth, Massachusetts, and Connecticut were considering something called the Halfway Covenant. Like New Haven, they had a large population of men who were not church members, but paid taxes, owned land, participated in the militia, and very much wanted to have some rights in government. The solution in these other places was what is called the Halfway Covenant gaining some recognition in the church while not yet full members, and with that, gaining some suffrage. Reverend Davenport and Governor Eaton refused to even discuss the matter. It seemed their allies, which they had so much hope in a decade ago, had lost their way. To even consider these people who are not confirmed to be of the elect a say in government, and thus infuse their influence into the collective spirit of the colony, the New Haveners saw nothing Puritan about this process and wanted no part of it. And in fact, rounding out this year, the general court ordered that every plantation that lacked a schoolmaster hire one immediately. It was time to rein in the masses, educate the children, and separate the wheat from the chaff. I'm sad to say that 1658 doesn't turn out to be any better for New Haven. As for the first time on record anyway, the colony isn't just dealing with non-church members who are 
otherwise productive members of society, the Quakers have come. Yes, I know to today's ear, a Quaker sounds like a pretty mild person. It sounds like a person who's selling you breakfast foods. It's not someone you would worry about. You could turn your back to them without having to watch the silverware. However, in the 1650s, the Quakers were some of the most erratic and radical people in the English-speaking world. Every colony seemed to have hated the Quakers. Yes, even Roger Williams himself in Providence allowed Quakers to have their freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, but he didn't like them. One Quaker in Rhode Island, a former follower of Anne Hutchinson, who had very similar beliefs to the Quakers, named Mary Dyer, continuously compelled by the spirit, kept entering the Massachusetts Bay Colony to the point where eventually they executed her. And so, yes, in Massachusetts, they're killing Quakers. In Rhode Island, they're merely resenting them. In New Netherland, they're torturing and beating them. And here we are back in New Haven when the first one shows up in 1658, a man by the name of Humphrey Norton, who had already been banished from the Plymouth Colony. He shows up in Southhold on Long Island, part of the New Haven Colony, where he was fined, whipped, branded, and banished. So let's dive into this briefly. Why would just the mere presence of the Quakers be so offending to everyone? Well, on the civic side of things, Quakers believed they had a direct link to God, that God could speak to them directly. So their form of a church service was everyone together in a room, all collectively known as friends, speaking as God's spirit descended upon them or decided to commune with them in some fashion. In this way, there was no clergy. You, when God decided to speak to you, you would be the reverend. You would be the minister. And just as quickly as you become the speaker, somebody else could be moved by the spirit to speak. Taking this directness into the public sphere, if you had a direct line to God, well, you don't need to really listen to any government authority, do you? Why listen to a sheriff, a magistrate, or even a king when God can tell you exactly what it wants from you? And so Quakers did not obey civil authority. They did not take oaths. They did not participate in militias. They, they were pacifists. They didn't participate in wars. They evaded taxes. That's a big one. Today, we might call them anarchists or maybe less radical Christian libertarians. The colonies weren't having it, and especially New Haven. That very same year, they banned Quaker books. And as if this new spiritual contaminant wasn't enough, there was a very real series of waves of malaria through the colony between 1658 and 1660. Reverend John Davenport's wife, Elizabeth Davenport, became the colonial point person for dealing with the mass sickness. She would concoct herbal remedies and then would try to balance the four humors, something any doctor of the day would have tried to do, believing that the four liquid substances of your body have to be in perfect balance in order to be in perfect health. Elizabeth even opened a correspondence with John Winthrop Jr., who, based on his training, would have been considered a doctor in his day. The two would exchange medicinal powders and seek medical advice from one another. Just to get a little window into healthcare at the time, quoting the historian Rebecca Tannenbaum, In the 17th century, medical care in the colonies was provided by two sources, skilled housewives and learned physicians, and the two were mutually dependent. And perhaps because of these plagues, Governor Thelophius Eaton dies. Yes, the man who with Reverend John Davenport planned this colony from the beginning, provided a large part of the financing, 
invited other reverends and their congregations to settle nearby, creating all the other settlements in the New Haven colony. If New Haven was a two-cylinder engine, one of those cylinders just quit. And now we are truly turning to the dark side, finally leaving the year 1658. The 1660s would prove to be the worst decade of all for New Haven. And the troubles would all begin in England. In the year 1660, Charles II is restored to the throne. Yes, that's right. We went through a civil war. We went through a parliamentary period, a protectorate where Oliver Cromwell, a huge supporter of the Puritans, ruled as king in all but name. And upon his death, passed his role as Lord High Protector onto his own son, who ruled very briefly, bringing us to the point where Charles II, the son of Charles I, who was executed in England, returns triumphantly to the throne, restoring his family to power. Every one of England's colonies would now have to gravel for a new charter from the restored monarch. This would include New Haven, which never had a charter in the first place. Remember that great ship that went down? This alone might have spelled the end of New Haven. But we have more elements, don't we? Of course we do. Now, in 1649, when Charles I was executed, his death warrant was signed by 59 prominent parliamentarians. That warrant in the hand of his son, Charles II, was a death warrant for everyone who signed it, and even their immediate associates. Suddenly, these powerful men that decades before killed a king were stateless refugees. Some tried hiding in England, didn't work out so well. Some fled to Europe. But remember, Charles II had far more connections in Europe than many of his predecessors. And one by one, he would have them hunted down or extradited back to England, where they would face a number of different tortures. Needless to say, all their property and wealth in England was confiscated. Any family left destitute. Some were in prison for life. Many were hung, drawn, and quartered. Very few people would experience such a fall from fortune. Now, there were two groups that you might consider lucky, or at least luckier to those who lost their heads. The first were the number of people who signed the death warrant who died before the restoration in 1660. The second group contains the very small minority of regicides, as they called them, who got away. Two of the regicides, parliamentarians Whaley and Goff, were hoping to be in the second group. They arrived in Boston in July of 1660, having fled England just before Charles II landed. So they're already off to a good start. It was these two men that first informed New England of the Restoration. Now they expected the people of Massachusetts to harbor them, or at least they hoped so, as the people of Massachusetts, as you know from previous episodes, were not fans of Charles I, the person who rescinded their charter, and would several times authorize Sir Ferdinando Gorgias to invade Massachusetts if necessary and install himself as governor over all of New England. So, Whaley and Goff, number one, they left England in time. Number two, they found a group that might be sympathetic to them, but they quickly found themselves pariahs in Boston. As the leadership of the Massachusetts Bay Colony realized that, politically, they would now have to quickly pivot from their pro-Parliament turned pro-Cromwellian stance and grovel at the knees of Charles II and hope that some mercy would be forthcoming. Such turncoat behavior sent Whaley and Goff into the wilderness. They quickly left Massachusetts. Governor Endicott of Massachusetts 
was very much relieved when these two men went missing, hoping that would be the end of the issue and that England wouldn't suspect the men of ever having come through. But of course, that's not what happens, right? In May of 1661, Endicott receives a royal arrest warrant from Charles II for the capture of regicides who are suspected to have run away to New England. And specifically, it mentions Whaley and Goff. The level of specificity must have sent shivers down Governor Endicott's spine as he was now in the process of having his colony submit to the king and beg for a new charter. So on May 6th, Endicott finalized the full turn and he hired agents to arrest Whaley and Goff. No matter where they were in New England, the king also included letters to pass on to the other English colonies, and he even had one for Peter Stuyvesant, governor of the New Netherland colony. You don't kill the king of England and get away with it. Endicott hired two agents, Thomas Kirkland and Thomas Kelland, who were known royalists to their core, men who otherwise would have been the outcast in Massachusetts society, or at least a silenced minority. Now they would have to serve as the spokespeople and the public face of Massachusetts to the new royal court. Kirk and Kelland set off through Massachusetts to track the trail of Whaley and Golf. Everybody in the colony being the same basket, there are many people willing to detail where months ago the two regicides had stayed and where they had went, which led the two men to the Connecticut colony, just upriver from New Haven. Now, something we haven't spoken about yet is that the Connecticut colony has increasingly shown interest in absorbing the New Haven colony, much as it did Saybrook. They were in close proximity to one another. They both had competing settlements on the mainland and on Long Island, and both were of a size that it seemed like they would naturally combine at one point anyway. The people of Connecticut very quickly whispered into the agent's ear, New Haven. And so turning south, the agents went to the most Puritan of Puritan colonies where suddenly the people were unknowing, not quite sure who Whaley and Goff were, dragging their feet on questions. Friendly, but slow to be helpful, the new governor of New Haven, Governor Leet, told the investigators that, yes, the regicides had been here, but they had left nine weeks before, probably on their way to New Netherland. This was a lie. Everyone knew this was a lie. Others in the colony provided a little more detail, and they outed Reverend John Davenport. The agents received this information at the New Haven settlement of Guilford. And with this, they wished to quickly go to the actual New Haven settlement to Davenport's house and investigate. However, the leaders of Guilford found ways to delay their journey. And why would they have to do this? Well, as it turns out, the regicides were in New Haven, living in Davenport's own house and next door in the house of one Thomas Jones, whose father was also a regicide. But when the agents managed to make their way to New Haven, they were gone. Maybe just the day before, or a number of hours before, but they weren't there any longer, and there was no evidence of them having been there. The agents were bewildered. They seemed so close to catching these men, and they suspected now everyone in the New Haven colony of a vast conspiracy. They requested that Governor Leet give them the power to conduct warrantless searches throughout the entire colony. Governor Leet, of course, refuses. The two men having no way to force the matter, at least at the moment, then give up and leave for New Netherland. And where had Whaley and Goff gone? 
As it turns out, they were hiding in a cave in New Haven, now known as the Judge's Cave. And the trail leading up to it is now called Regicide's Trail. There they would live for quite some time. But live they did. A small price to pay to be one of the few Regicides who survived the 1660 slaughter. In the decades to come, they would take on different identities and hide themselves in the little nooks and crannies of New England. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that was that was an interesting story. Well, what are your sources for that story? Well, obviously, we have the report from the agents at the time. We have the records from the governor and officials from Massachusetts, Connecticut and New Haven. But also a later Massachusetts governor, Governor Thomas Harrison, acquired the diaries and letters of Goff, of Colonel Goff one of the men who had gotten away and used it to write his own history of New England. But going back to Governor Endicott, he had the two agents upon their return write a report to send to the king. And in that report, it said that the New Haven government was in contempt of his majesty. This will not bode well for New Haven, as you can imagine. As in the months after this, toward the tail end of 1661 into 62, New Haven like all the other colonies, were formalizing their plans to beg for a new charter from the new restoration government. And as mentioned before, New Haven never had a charter to begin with. And the colony of Massachusetts is outright accusing New Haven of harboring men who sanctioned the killing of the current king's father. Now, this is where we get into conflicting accounts. According to Connecticut, Governor Leet of New Haven asked that the agent going to get a charter for Connecticut include the New Haven colony inside of the Connecticut charter, thus implying the absorption of New Haven into Connecticut. The governor would have done this, not having any hope that New Haven would receive a charter all on its own. John Winthrop Jr., representing Connecticut, set sail for England after this. Soon after this, not knowing that John Winthrop had already left, authorities in New Haven asked Connecticut if their agent would also served to obtain a charter for their colony of New Haven, separate from Connecticut. Of course, this couldn't be done as the agent had already left for England. And his instructions were to get one single charter for Connecticut that encompassed all the lands of New Haven. Now, Winthrop in England, he had his work cut out for him, right? Because Connecticut had some issues of legitimacy, not as many as New Haven, but the origins of their Legal claim to the land that Connecticut sat upon lay in something called the Warwick Patent, which we talked about in our Saybrook episode. The Earl of Warwick had a large chunk of land in New England, at least on paper, and he had subdivided it and given it to the planned colony of Saybrook. That grant of land was then obtained in 1643-44 by the new colony of Connecticut. But Winthrop didn't have the Warwick grant in hand. He also didn't have the sale of it from Saybrook to Connecticut in hand, or even a bill of sale. He merely had copies, and perhaps copies of copies, or perhaps faked copies of original documents that never existed in the first place. It's debatable. And this would just cover their legal ownership of the land in the English system anyway. It doesn't justify their right to form their own government, which is a whole separate power altogether. Nevertheless, the New Haveners back at home were spooked. They knew at best Winthrop would be coming back with a charter that absorbed their colony. At worst, neither Connecticut nor New Haven would receive a charter, in which case what would happen to them? How would they be reorganized? Who would rule over them? In response to this, in November of 1661, 
Deputy Governor of New Haven, Matthew Gilbert, in a friendly correspondence with Governor Stuyvesant of New Netherland, tries to negotiate a new Puritan settlement, a new New Haven in New Netherland. Consider the turn of prospects here. Several times before, New Haveners tried to force their settlement within the bounds of New Netherland. And now here we are, the New Haveners trying to negotiate their way into New Netherland to become a subservient section. Negotiations ultimately broke down because Governor Stuyvesant insisted that the magistrate of the settlement should be selected by him and that the New Haveners in the new settlement would select two candidates from which Stuyvesant would make the final selection. This was a common practice in New Netherland, a practice in local suffrage, but also a check by the governor himself making the final selection between two choices. The negotiations broke down and went nowhere. Perhaps the deputy governor of New Haven had heard the rumors that Charles II planned to take over New Netherland himself. These rumors included insane details that could never be, such that New Netherland would be taken over and then given to his brother, the Duke of York. And as crazy as it might seem, the whole area would be renamed something like New York. But who can put such stock into rumors, right? We're in 1661. But moving into the next year, to quote the historian Murray Rothbard, Winthrop managed by judicious distribution of money in London to obtain for Connecticut a royal charter in May of 1662. And perhaps due to the money that he spread around, Connecticut, of course, absorbed New Haven in the new charter. We've already discussed that. But Winthrop managed to get not only the Saybrook portion of the Warwick patent in its charter, but the entire Warwick patent altogether, which meant that it actually took a chunk out of Rhode Island, a chunk Rhode Island would have to fight for to get back when it received its own charter, because at least it had a charter, unlike the New Haven colony. When the news made its way back to New England, Reverend John Davenport, again, remember, one of the founders of New Haven, damned the charter and claimed that he wrote Winthrop several times, expressing that New Haven be set apart as its own colony with its own charter. And he would even testify to this in his church services. The New Haven General Court's official response to Connecticut and this new charter was as follows. We do not find in the patent any command given to you nor prohibition to us to dissolve covenants or alter the orderly settlements of New England. In other words, we might be encompassed by your charter, but we're going to maintain a separate government. Despite this proclamation, agents from Connecticut began visiting the various New Haven towns and holding official Connecticut elections to install a rival group of Connecticut officials in each New Haven town. By the end of 1662, this worked successfully in Southhold. Stamford and Guilford. Come the new year, the New Haven colony only consisted of New Haven Profford, Branford, and Milford. The historian Harry Ward describes these holdouts as part of the theocratic commercial party. In other words, the staunch ultra-Puritans who followed Reverend John Davenport and those who had business interests tied up in the established order. Nonetheless, the New Haven government continued to try to tax the settlements that had gone over to the Connecticut colony, not recognizing their transfer. Reverend John Davenport makes it clear to Winthrop that Governor Leet's earlier request that New Haven be absorbed by Connecticut by charter was his own request and not the opinion of the entire colony nor the general court. 
Furthermore, New Haven refused to even negotiate a merger with Connecticut until Connecticut restored the villages it had taken over, removed their illegally appointed officers, and recognized New Haven's elected officers. Only then, having backtracked on their aggression, could they have any sort of friendly discussion. The New Haveners also appealed to the United Colonies of New England, a confederation they had joined along with Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Plymouth. One of their founding rules, it's in their constitution, is that each colony would agree to respect the territorial boundaries of the other. Clearly, they argued, Connecticut had violated that. Furthermore, the United Colonies Constitution states that no two member colonies could merge without permission from the other two colonies. In other words, if Connecticut wanted to merge or absorb New Haven, it would need permission from the commissioners of Massachusetts and Plymouth. And you know what? If you read that constitution, New Haven is right on both points. And in September of 1663, the commissioners of the United Colonies agree with New Haven. New Haven should remain independent from Connecticut. However, Connecticut ignored that decision. And there was no mechanism inside of the United Colonies to enforce that ruling, as all executive power stayed invested in the individual general courts of each colony. John Winthrop Jr. went to work, and by the next month, he got the United Colonies to declare that New Haven should respect the new charter of the king, Charles II, and fold into Connecticut. And so in a stunning reversal, New Haven, as the most Puritan of Puritan colonies, proved to be the sacrificial lamb of the United Colonies of New England. The United Colonies would agree with the king and uphold the Connecticut charter and destroy New Haven, the colony that had given the regicides their final escape. And with this sacrifice, hopefully the restored monarchy would look favorably on the remaining Puritan colonies. And as much as the last generation of New Haven had hoped to invade and take over New Netherland, as 1663 turned into 1664, those rumors of the English takeover of New Netherland were becoming quite real. And the Duke of York's grant not only included the former New Netherland colony, but all of the land from there east to the Connecticut River. That would swallow up New Haven. And now the rump of the New Haven colony still holding on had even less choices. There were essentially two ways to go now. You could become part of Connecticut, fall under their charter, and dispute the territorial claim of the Duke. Or you could continue to fight off Connecticut and become subjects inside of the Duke of York's proprietary colony of New York. A colony with quit rents, significantly greater freedom of religion, meaning the Puritans would most certainly lose their control over their own communities, as suffrage would be extended well beyond church members. And then quite specifically, now they're inside of a colony owned by a man whose father's killers you supposedly helped escape, when in fact, you were still harboring them. And so with really only two choices on the table, New York or Connecticut, the Puritans of New Haven went screaming toward a Connecticut absorption. Come November 26th, 1664, the General Court of the Colony of New Haven met for the final time and collectively submitted to Connecticut. This union would be formalized January 5th, 1665. And with it, the Colony of New Haven was no more. And if you're a longtime listener of this podcast, you know we've moved into the legacy portion of the episode. And although there is no longer a New Haven colony or a state of New Haven, much like the former Saybrook colony, 
The New Haven settlements simply became part of Connecticut, and the people there became citizens of Connecticut, and part of the Connecticut story, and therefore the American story. And the thousands of New Haveners in the 17th century must have millions of descendants today. And the same goes for the New Haven settlements on Long Island, which didn't actually join Connecticut. They didn't want to, and became part of New York, obviously. Our next episode will detail how that happened. And until around about 1875, New Haven was a co-capital of Connecticut along with Hartford, rotating the location of their colonial and state assemblies between both locations on opposite years. Uh, but like Long Island, not everyone wanted to be absorbed by Connecticut. This would include, of course, Reverend John Davenport, founder of the colony, who wished to make a perfect Puritan society at the end of the English world. His childhood friend, best friend, the deceased Governor Eaton, elaborated on this plan and sought to make a number of Puritan settlements down the coast of North America, creating a great trading empire. And yet, Reverend John Davenport had the misfortune of living too long and seeing the rise of New Haven and the fall of New Haven. The Connecticut historian Edward Atwater says that Davenport never recovered from the disappointment. Indeed, he found he could not live in the Connecticut colony. It was too painful. He viewed New Haven as being in a fallen state, and he accepted the invitation of John Cotton to preach at the Boston church and take up residence there, where he would linger until 1670 and pass away. The historian Myrna Kagan writes that he died a sorrowful man. Indeed, the settlements of the former New Haven colony would quickly lose the severity of its Puritanism and adapt itself to the Connecticut law code. Other than Davenport, a group of staunch Puritans in the settlement of Branford, completely opposed to its Connecticut absorption, pack up the entire settlement. They depopulate Branford. They take all of the records and they relocate to the new New Jersey colony, which had been broken off from New York. And they created a little settlement called New Work, New Jersey, N-E-W space W-O-R-K, which of course today is Newark. New Jersey. So few people remained in Branford that it lost its status as a municipality and would not regain it until 1685. And what of the regicides? As it turns out, they never did settle in New Netherland. They stayed in New England under their new identities, living quiet lives. They only showed up publicly when times were desperate. In 1675, during King Philip's War, in Hadley, Massachusetts, the attacking natives almost overran the village. Until William Goff, the regicide himself, suddenly appeared like a ghost and bravely led the defense of Hadley, Massachusetts. Once the natives were successfully fought off and disappeared into the forest, Goff, likewise, was nowhere to be found. There's a plaque outside of the regicide cave where Goff and Whaley had hidden for a time while Endicott's agents were in the New Haven colony. It reads, Opposition to tyrants is obedience to God. And with that, our little adventure, our two-episode arc into New Haven is over. And now in our next episode, we're going to meet a character, a scallywag, a scoundrel, a rascal by the name of John Scott, who earned the allegiance of the New Haven settlements on Long Island and pulled them away from Connecticut's domain, becoming the president of Long Island. <laughs>